Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to the Heartwork Community Quran Study of Surah Yusuf at Roots. All of our programming at Roots is live streamed and published free of charge thanks to the goodwill of our monthly sustainers. Your donations allow us to continue our mission of being a community of welcoming, providing meaningful content, and nurturing our hearts, minds, and souls in coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You can help us reach our Ramadan campaign goal of 250 new sustainers by signing up today, or if you are already a sustainer, you can increase your amount and also encourage your family and friends to support the work we do by signing up at rootsdfw.org slash sustain. As always, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and reward you. Jazakumullah khairan wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Bismillah. Bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi jma'in. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Everybody, welcome home. It's good to see everybody here, alhamdulillah. Um, I, uh, I was reading something earlier today that I thought was really amazing. Um, so as you guys can probably guess, or as you guys know, when it comes to the Qur'an, one of the miracles of the Qur'an is that um, the reflections on it and the, the, the applications of it are many. Uh, when it comes to rulings and when it comes to things like that are legal, uh, those are more like numbered. So you have like, okay, so-and-so based on this verse said this or extracted this or the Prophet ﷺ taught us this. But when it comes to reflections, things that are not binding, they're not like rules. They're just, you know, thoughts that a person had upon reading this in connection with other uh, texts. They are many, like many, many. So... One of the reflections that I read earlier today that I thought was kind of astounding actually had to do with the verse. I didn't mean to, but it just had to do with the verse that we left off on. And I thought that I would share this because it's kind of a good time to talk about, you know, um, tawakkul and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which along with dealing with difficulty and, and trial, the story of Yusuf is a story filled with moments of 
trust and reliance upon Allah tawakkul. So if you guys remember so far, there's been a few different crises that have happened in the life of Yusuf. Uh, the first one being that he was uh, you know, tricked by his brothers, left for dead in the well. Um, the second one was that he was captured and in the moment of capture, like anything could have happened to him, really. And um, instead of him being captured and, you know, being killed, he was kept alive and he was sold. And he happened to be sold to the, the family of the, one of the ministers. But he obviously was put in a tough spot there with the, the minister's wife having feelings for him and trying to make attempts at him. And at the end of it all, through his principle and his uh, persistence and his commitment to him, himself and his faith, he ended up being in prison, okay? Now, each of the moments he found himself in, whether it was the well or whether it was the... Um, sorry, one of them was that his brothers didn't kill him. Sorry, that was really the first test. Was that his brothers decided not to kill him. They decided, let's just throw him in the well. So he, his life was not taken. He was just left for... Uh, left in the well, and then when he was brought out, he was sold, but he was not sold to a bad uh, person, he was sold to a good family, like well-to-do, privileged, whatever, and then instead of being uh, uh, wrongfully accused and found guilty, he was found innocent, but there was sort of a smoothing over of the issue because this person was royalty, and then upon all of this, when he was tested, he was put into the prison, all of these moments were moments in which Yusuf salam demonstrated, right, when he said that, oh Allah, the prison is more beloved to me. All of these moments were moments that Yusuf demonstrated that when you're in a tough spot, you call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In this verse, number 42, we have the first time that we see Yusuf, peace be upon him, his words in which he is asking someone else. Right, So the whole time, we see that whenever Yusuf is in a tough spot, he gets saved. Okay, And then this time is the first time in which he says, Hey, remember me when you go out to the, to the minister, to the, to the Aziz, remember me and mention my name, please. And when he put this person in his, in, you know, trusted him really, then shaitan caused this person to forget. And as a result of that, Yusuf had to spend an extended amount of time in prison. Okay? Now, the tafsir that I read I thought was amazing, which is that the reflection was, up until this point, Yusuf had never asked anyone else for help. He had always relied upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, in every moment. So when it came to the well, he's calling upon Allah. Jibreel, the hadith says that Jibreel came to him and gave him this assurance that you'll be okay. Uh, when it came to the moment of him being the seduction, he said what? Ma'adallah, he called out to Allah. When it came to the moment of the party, when the women were all being given the exhibition of Yusuf to see that the wife was not in fact, you know, making something up, that he was in fact handsome, then what did he say? Oh Allah, the prison is more beloved to me than what they call me to. So every single time he's calling to Allah. Now... There's the first moment where he looks at the guy who's getting freedom and he says to him, hey, please remember me. Okay? So the reflection that I read was so astounding and said that when you rely upon people, you're always leaving your destiny or your fate 
in some way to the human faculty, and humans are prone to forget. So when you trust in somebody, you're not doing something wrong, and you're allowed to ask for help, and of course, like, that, that's part of human nature. You're going to ask someone, hey, can you help me? Can you give me a... But you're always leaving your salvation or your success or whatever it is in that situation up to the human faculty, the human ability. How motivated is this person? How, how much do they care about me? How, much, how good is their memory? How good is their ability to recall what I'm saying and prioritize it and make it a thing that matters to them? But the Mufas said earlier that I was reading, he said, when you call upon Allah first and primarily and solely, like before you ask anyone else for help, you call upon Allah, then you will always find that your situations will be resolved in the way that is the most smooth and the most beautiful and the most timely. So he puts his trust in this guy for the first time. He's putting trust in some created being and now all of a sudden, subhanAllah, what happens? فَأَنْسَاهُ الشَّيْطَانُ ذِكْرَ رَبِّهِ He forgot. This shaytan made him forget to mention him to the master, meaning the minister, the one who had put him in. And what happened ultimately? فَلَبِثَ فِي السِّجْنِ That he ended up staying in the prison بِذِعَسِنِينَ That he stayed there for quite a while. And it ended up being the case, according to the hadith of the Prophet that he was there for 12 years. Okay? So now we fast forward to the next, le- the next point in the story, the next lesson in the story. So the scene changes, and now we have the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt, by the way, is different than the minister. The minister, they're two different people. So the king now is talking to his court, and he says to his court that what? I saw, and in parentheses here, in my dream, meaning he didn't see it for real, he saw it, a vision in his dream, that there were seven fat cows, that were consumed or eaten by seven skinny ones. And then he said, I saw seven green crops or ears of grain and seven others that were dry. So then now he calls upon his minister, his court, and he says, what do you guys think is, what's happening here? What's going on? Tell me the meaning of this, if you can interpret dreams. Now, the, the, the court, or the, you know, in America we call it the cabinet, right? The, the committee of people surrounding a ruler, they tend to be intelligent or not intelligent? Who do you choose to surround leadership? Smart people, right? I, ideally, I'm not asking for your political views right now. <laughs> Just saying, in an ideal world, leader, who's the shura for the leader? Smart or not smart? Smart. You want to surround yourself with someone who's good with economics, someone who understands policy, someone who understands foreign affairs, someone who understands transportation, security, right? You want, this is the idea, okay? Now, obviously, we understand that, you know, in the real world, uh, favors and advocacy and all that are there. But in the ideal world, you want it to be people that are intelligent. And classically, the idea of shura, of counsel, your counsel were people that were intelligent, that could help you. And this is something that even if you're not a leader of a country or anything, you should still have smart people around you. You should never be the smartest person in your group of friends. If you're the smartest person, you got to upgrade quick, right? Or you got to enroll everyone in a workshop together on something, right? You got to do like the Jeopardy boot camp or something, okay? Because you want to be a person that's constantly benefiting from people around you, right? And anytime you are the most knowledgeable about a topic in a, in a group of friends, even if, it, let's say it's temporary, let's say that you know a lot about cars, right? Don't 
because you like the feeling, don't be the person that constantly situates yourself in that group all the time. Like seek out the discomfort of being the one who's ignorant and the one who has to ask the person, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? This is part of our religious tradition, actually, is to be a person that seeks knowledge as a result of recognizing your own ignorance. Muslims are never complacent with what we know. We always want to know more, especially with religious knowledge, for sure, but any kind of knowledge. You always want to be able to learn more and more. So he surrounds himself with these people. But what's the danger of being somebody who is pretty smart when it comes to one thing, but not really that intelligent when it comes to another thing? Well, that's exactly what happens after he asked the question. These people are not good at interpreting dreams. So their response is not only a response that is empty, like it's not just vacant, but it's condescending. And the tone they use, they actually change the word. So the, 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 the king earlier said, I saw in a dream, which is one way of describing it. And then they say, They say that these are weird and instead of saying ru'ya, uh, uh, which means dream, they say ahlam. Ahlam means like scattered, scrambled thoughts. So instead of them like using the same word, they were like, you're basically, you're on something. I don't know what you ate last night. You had too much milk or you, you, know, you didn't get enough sleep. They're basically in, in, implicitly kind of attacking, not attacking, but the, why are they so aggressive in their tone? Why are they saying that? These are nothing but weird thoughts, man. And the interpretation, we don't, do, we don't know interpretations of these kinds of things. Like, bring us the real stuff. Bring us the actual stuff. So, they're very dismissive. But why do you think their tone is so dismissive? Because they don't know. Very good. Who said that? Raise your hand, Michelle. Yeah, they don't know. They don't, be proud, right? Well, not pride. <laughs> right? Alhamdulillah, she knew. Okay. They're dismissive. And this is what happens, right? The nafs, which is the part of us like that ego part, the nafs never wants to be in a state of vulnerability, never wants to act like we don't know, never wants to act like we can't do something, right? Have you guys ever had a lot of grocery bags to carry into the house, and you were with somebody, and you tried to carry all of them with one go? Why? Because you don't want to be the person that has to make two trips, right? That's, it's, a, it's, it's a joke, but it's actually, I mean, what's the, the old uh, 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 example that's used is like, the husband asking for directions. In every movie, and every TV show, if they're lost, the wife's like, just pull over. He's like, ah, I know where we are. That's the nafs, right? And I'm not trying to cause any fights in couples who are here, right? But that's the nafs. So one of the ways that a person can become instantly closer to Allah is that instead of repelling moments where you don't know, you embrace them. You embrace them and you appreciate them and you take them as opportunities. And you don't fear the moment where you have to admit that you don't know something. You don't fear that moment. But I will say one thing. It's also important to make it easy as a community for people to say they don't know. It's really important. What do I mean by that? We should never make someone feel under pressure to like procure an answer for us in case they don't know something. Meaning if someone says to us, like, I don't know, they should never be shamed. They should never be told, like, how could you not know? This is so simple, right? And this is one of the reasons why, like, and I don't want anyone to raise hands or look around, but this is one of the reasons why many of us, we get into our 20s and our 30s, and we maybe still don't know how to read the Quran properly yet. 
And a lot of the reason why is because if we try and fail, there's going to be someone there that's listening that says, you don't know how to read? You know what I mean? And that kind of response is something that just makes a person take 10 years back in their courage to try to learn anything. Okay? And this is also a tool that shaitan uses. Don't become part of shaitan's team to make someone be so afraid of the humiliation of not knowing. Right? There's ways to encourage someone to learn without humiliating them. Uh, there is a, a famous story of Imam Malik. Imam Malik was one of the great, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the founder of the Maliki school of, of Islamic law. It was named after him. And there was a person who visited him from North Africa, and he came to him from Jazair, and he came to him, Maghrib and Jazair, that part. He traveled all the way across North Africa to go to Medina, where Imam Malik lived, to ask him a list of questions. And he read to him this question, these questions, and Imam Malik, for those of you like, just to kind of paint the picture, he was someone who knew everything. I mean, really, in his knowledge, he was so incredibly knowledgeable. But this guy asked these questions, and after asking these questions, I think it was something, I forget now exactly the number, but there was a list of questions, and Imam Malik, basically, to like 95% of them, he said, La adri. لا أدري, I don't know, لا أدري, I don't know, over and over and over and over again. So the guy became upset, became frustrated. And he said, how are, how are you going to just sit here and tell me you don't know? Like I came all the way from the other side of the continent to come and ask you because you're a legend, you're supposed to know everything. And he goes, and now I came here and I asked you these questions and you don't know? So Imam Malik, he felt bad for him. And he said, okay, you know what, like, just give me one day, give me one day, and come back to me tomorrow, and I'll have an answer for you, hopefully. So the guy's like, all right, good. He comes back the next day, and he's like, okay, what's the answer to these questions? And my Maddox's like, uh, I don't know. And now the guy becomes upset, and he says, you know, you are so-and-so, you are this, you're that. He's praising him, and he says, listen to what he says, right? This is very important, the humiliation. This is shaitan's tool. He says, what are the people going to say when I tell them that I went to Imam Malik and he said, I don't know. You see, how, you see what he's doing? He's not talking about the questions anymore. Now he's talking about what? Reputation, clout. He says, you're really famous. What is everyone going to say as I travel all the way back across North Africa? And, I, said, and I, I tell people, they say, where did you come from? He said, I came, I went all the way to Imam Malik. I had a hundred questions. He didn't know any of them. What are people going to think about you? And Imam Malik said, قُلْ لَهُمْ مَالِكْ لَا يَدْرِي he didn't, he didn't run. He doubled down. Tell them! I'll give you a shirt. Malik doesn't know. <laughs> tell them! You see how shaitan's trying to operate in your vulnerability? What, what would a scholar be most afraid of? Being called ignorant. And Imam Malik is like, go ahead, I'll be the first. And then the guy, you know, he realizes he made a mistake. And he says, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean for it to come off like that. And he says, I just, I just think that these are like really easy questions, man. You know, like you should, if anyone knows, like you got to know this stuff. And he uses a, a phrase that makes Imam Malik cry. He says, هذا شيء خفيف من العلم. This is very light stuff in knowledge. Like, I'm not asking you crazy things, man. And Imam Malik, فَبَكَى Malik, he starts crying. And he said, 
He said, ma shay, la shay fil ilm khafif. There's nothing light in knowledge. He says, hal sami'ata qawli uh, Allahi ta'ala? Have you not heard the word of Allah ta'ala where Allah ta'ala said, inna sanunqi alayka qawlan thaqila. We revealed upon you a speech that is heavy. He said, there's nothing light in this stuff. Okay, now why did I tell you this story and take up a lot of class time? To protect myself after class from the question. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so now I can tell you, like, I don't know, right? Um, no, but really, but really, I do wanna I do wanna impress upon us what well, part of heart work is is working on the heart, duh. So I want us all to understand this. When you ask anyone a question, it's important to not use humiliation and shame as a way to, to make someone feel a certain type of way. There's no learning as a result of that. There's no learning as a result of that, okay? Um, and so, these guys are demonstrating exactly why. Their, their ego is, 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 is uh, inflamed, right? Their ego is having issues. Now, in this gathering, right, this is happening sort of in the, you can imagine, in the public court, and you got the guy who's serving wine, and he hears this conversation about dreams. And all of a sudden, he says, oh yeah, I remember there's a guy. They're talking about dreams and meanings of dreams. There's a guy that... You know, it clicked. So he says, finally, the ex-prisoner, the one who, what, uh, the one who was saved from the two of them, remembered Yusuf after a long time. And he said, I will tell you what this dream means. He was very confident. I will tell you exactly what this dream means. But he says, you got to send me to the guy in the prison. Give me permission. Now, the king, this is kind of interesting, but according to the tafsir, the king is not very aware of how Yusuf got to the prison. Why? The crime happened a long time ago. The crime had to do not with the king, but with the minister. Now, when I say crime, I was, you know, I'm not talking about a real crime. The allegations, the situation, right? The, 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 the oppression happened against Yusuf a long time ago. And the king wasn't involved in it. It was like a lower court thing. So the king's kind of like, okay, I guess there's a guy in prison that can, that can tell you about my dream, okay? So subhanAllah, he ends up going back to Yusuf. And he goes to him, and can you imagine like the awkward conversation? Right? Can you imagine? There's a couple lessons here that I want to share with you. Number one, in the tafsir it's mentioned, no one will ever forget the good thing you did for them. Like 12 years later, this prisoner is like, oh my goodness. You know, part of the sunnah of Allah, part of the way that Allah has designed the, the universe, is that when you do something good for somebody, it, it has a very interesting way of attaching itself to their consciousness. In a way that's different than other things. You know, I could have a conversation with somebody, and I could almost instantly forget everything we said. But if that person hands my son a piece of candy... I may not even remember that person's name, but I will always remember what they did. Right? What is that statement? People remember what you say, but they remember what you do, what you did, and how you made them feel. That's so true. And if you think of the Prophet ﷺ, what is a better example of his life? All the Prophets. What is a better example of their, their thesis in life? How they operated? You know, if you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and you look at his, his religious conversations, with his da'wah with people, you would be hard-pressed to find him engaging in religious debate. It's very rare. It's very rare that you would find the Prophet ﷺ sitting and saying, you know what, I challenge you to a debate. 
And I know that you know, for Muslims now on YouTube, it seems like that's all the Prophet ever did. Right? I'm going to debate you on this, debate you on that. Meet me there, meet me, speaker's corner. Right, British Muslims. No offense. Much offense. Okay, so, no, no, I love, I love my British Muslims. Uh, almost all of them. So, uh, except for the ones on speaker's corner. So, so, again, it becomes like a thing. Like, debate, debate, debate. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a space in Islam for conversations, munadara, discussion. You find that the great imams of of, of our tradition engaged in these things. But there's a really beautiful story that I'll share with you. There's, a, there's an etiquette, right? There's an etiquette. Abu Hanifa one time, Abu Hanifa, who's another founder of one of the schools, uh, Abu Hanifa noticed his son was engaging in debate with people uh, you know, that he disagreed with. And Abu Hanifa was a great you know, debater. He was somebody that engaged in debate himself. So he went to his son one day and he said, you're not allowed to do this anymore. Stop. And his son was like, wait a minute. Last time I checked, I'm your son. And Abu Hanifa, if anyone knows you for anything, you have so many legendary tales about you winning debates. Why would someone who's so good at something go and tell their own son, like, don't do this? You know what I mean? As a father, when someone sees my son Musa, who is, no joke, as tall as my wife, he's six. She's 34. This is not a joke. She can wear his shoes. Okay? There's a weird sense of pride that I feel when I look at my son and everyone's like, they just see, they see my son at school and I walk into school and they're like, I don't even know your name, but like, you're definitely related to that kid. The, the four foot tall kid in kindergarten, like that's your son for sure. You know, I'm like, what made you think that? And it makes any sort of connection between father and son, right? Whether it's like looks, you know, why do parents... It's, by the way, it's a, it's, a, it's a foolish thing to do. The baby is like 22 minutes old in the hospital. Like, who does she look like? That's going to change 4,000 times by the time she's... Anyways, so it, it, is, it is what it is. So uh, uh, you've got to start messing with people. If somebody starts to have that debate, oh, she looks like you, she looks like this and that, start naming random cousins. Be like, she looks like Shagufta, man. Like, you know, third cousin, your mom, yeah, you know, just start naming stuff and see how they take it. You got to keep a straight face, though. Okay, so, so, sorry for your name, Shagufta, I didn't mean to pick on you, okay? So, Abu Hanifa goes and tells his son, like, this is the one thing that I'm, like, yes, I'm, not the one thing, but one of the things I'm known for, but you can't do it anymore. Abu Hanifa's son is shocked. Why? And he says, because when we used to debate, when we used to debate, Abu Hanifa's saying, we were actually hoping for the other person to be right. Like secretly deep down, we wanted the other person to win. Because that would mean that we were the most sincere. But I can tell that when you debate, you're waiting for the person to misspeak and to say the wrong word or to say the wrong number and start launching all these attacks because they said the wrong thing. And he says, I'm noticing that this is your culture. You and your friends, you and your people you debate, you go at it hard. And you don't, you don't, you don't, willing, you don't actually want them to win. So he says, no more debating for you because you're not sincere. Right? So this is one of the things. Now, if you look at the Prophet, when he engaged with people, he was not insincere. But when you look at his primary method of teaching people 
was how he made them feel. How he made them feel. Ask yourself one question. How do people feel when they leave your presence? How do people feel when they hear that you're coming? When they know that you're on the way, are they excited? Are they happy? Are they relieved? Or are they stressed? Are they anxious? Are you the person that asks so many questions about personal lives that they are afraid that the interrogation's coming? Or are you the one that is so just warm in your presence that when, when they go hang out, they're like, oh, is she coming? Is he coming? No, they're not in town. Oh, man. You know, it's so much better when they're here. Right? Allah Ta'ala make us good in character. Okay? So, he goes down to Yusuf Alayhi Salam and he remembers at that moment what Yusuf did for him. And he shows up to Yusuf Alayhi Salam. So, don't ever, the point of that is don't ever forget what good you do for people. And don't cheapen what good you do by making it for some transaction. Do it for Allah and forget about it. Do it for Allah and forget about it. I'll never forget when I was talking to a young couple. And you know, young couples are always trying to make friends. And they were telling me, like, oh yeah, we, uh, we stopped inviting these people over for dinner. Uh, you know, we have friends groups and we stopped inviting one, one of them. And I said, why? And they said, because every time we invited the group, everyone else, you know, we, the invite kept going around. But then this couple, they never had us over. So we're not going to eat their food, they're not going to eat our food. And they said, we just cut them out. And I was like, man, were you inviting them over to host them? Or were you inviting them over because you wanted to get invited back? Like, what was the nature of your invite? A host wants everyone to come. Like, please, please come, come, come. They're not trying to say like, yeah, come and please, uh, before you enter our house, what date are we coming to your house? <laughs> it's not the nature of hosting somebody. These kinds of things can't be done. This is not what it means to do this. So don't cheapen your good deed by trying to tie it to some kind of reward. Just do it for Allah and let it happen, okay? We, we have space for those of you. Come on in. Okay, so he goes, Yusuf ayyuhas siddiq. He goes, oh, Yusuf, the man who was true, right? The true person. He doesn't even apologize. Hey, has it been 12 years? He doesn't come in and say anything. <laughs> but, you know, if I were him, I would have been like, I forgot your name. I would have been like, I had amnesia. As soon as I left the prison, I got hit in the head with the wine cellar thing or the wine barrel, and I can't remember anything. I'm not going to walk in there and be like, I remember everything about you except that you wanted me to tell the minister. So he goes to Yusuf and he says, Yusuf, the truthful person, interpret for us the dream. And then he tells him what the dream is. Seven fat cows being eaten up by seven skinny cows and seven green ears of grain and seven others dry. Tell me so that I can return back to people and I can let them know. Tell me so I can tell them and I can let them know. Okay? So, a couple things that are truly amazing here. Number one, in the next ayah, Yusuf just starts responding. He says, Qala, he says that you will plant for seven consecutive years. You will plant what? The crops. And you will leave whatever you harvest except for the little that you will eat. Meaning that this is the, this is the interpretation. For seven years, do whatever you got to do with your crops. Eat a little bit of it and harvest and save. Right? Basically, don't, don't go luxurious. Don't, don't go crazy with your food. 
And then he says, after that, why did you save all that food? Because there's going to be seven years of difficulty. And in those years of difficulty, you're going to have to eat whatever it is that you, whatever it is that you put away, whatever it is that you saved, except for a very little bit that you will keep from that, that you're going to use as new seed for the next uh, uh, batch. So he's telling him, your dream about seven ears and seven this, seven cows being eaten by seven, he says, this means you're going to have seven years where you're going to have to be very, very particular in your saving because after that, there's going to be seven years of drought. That's going to absolutely, if you don't take it seriously, it's going to wipe out your entire nation. The Prophet wasallam. all right, fast forward now, the life of the Prophet wasallam. he commented on this ayah, these, this passage. You know what he said? He said, may Allah have mercy on Yusuf. Meaning like he was basically praising him. What a guy. And he said, if it were me, the Prophet Muhammad is saying this, if it were me, the Prophet said, I would have told him, take me out of prison first and then I'll interpret your dreams. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm not going to sit there in prison 12 years and now going on 12 years in one day and I'm going to give you a dream for free? No, man, this is my skill. This is what I'm good at, right? As DJ Khaled said, my price went up. You know, get me out of here, and then I'll tell you everything you want to know. If you're really that desperate. So the Prophet <laughs> shows you kind of like the humor of the Prophet. He was obviously being, he wasn't criticizing you, he was joking, right? He's like, man, what a guy. He was praising him. What a person. Sits there, after being forgotten, gives this guy, by the way, there is a very real risk that Mr. Forgetful here, you know, subhanAllah, not being rude, but like, that's what happened, can, can go and be like, thanks, and be the hero. You know what I mean? Like, what guarantee does Yusuf have that this guy is going to say, yeah, he told, he's going to say, oh, you know what, on the way down to the prison, I figured it out. And he can just leave Yusuf high and dry. But again, never forget the good things you do for people. They'll never forget. Real ones will never forget what good you did for them. And also, don't forget what good people did for you. Right? So, Yusuf salam interprets this dream. He gives them, and subhanAllah, like we finished off last week, and I want to restate that here and now, just to now, because now we know the actual what's going to happen. Yusuf's imprisonment was Allah's design to save the people of Egypt. Because if Yusuf had been let go of, even a day early, how would they have found him to interpret this dream? He had to be there, right? And this is an important point because there are many times in your life you wonder why you are where, you're, where you are. You wonder that. Why am I where I am? Why do I feel like Allah is putting me in this position and I really badly don't want to be here, but I'm here. And no matter how hard I try, Day by day, month by month, maybe year by year. I'm trying to move my way out of it, but it's just not happening. There's so many different stories, man. And the older you get, I'm not trying to like make myself feel old or make you feel... But the older you get, and I see the older people nodding, so that makes me feel good. <laughs> the older you get, the more stories you have where you understand God's timing. You know, Ibn Atta'illah, he says this. He says, never forget you're on God's time, not your time. Allah is not on your time. You are on His time. I, I mean, 
I'll, I'll share a story. Anyone here? Anyone here? You don't got to raise your hand. For those of you here, not trying to do this here, but for those of you here who are interested potentially in getting married to somebody, not here, <laughs> but you're interested potentially in being married, a married person, having a spouse. In general, in life, in general, in life not here. <laughs> I just need to clarify. Right? Uh, they're, they're, I'm, I'm trying not to get too specific because I don't want the person to be like, wow, messed up. He talked about me on his podcast. Uh, <laughs> there is a person that I know. I need everyone to promise not to take this too literally because the story is very interesting. There's a person that I know who is trying very hard to get married, okay? And not really even to, well, in the beginning it was to one particular person, didn't work out, and then for a while tried hard to get married, okay? Uh, Sidebar, in the community, there was another person married. Years go by, and these people know each other, family, friends, whatever, and nothing like that. Relax. <laughs> nothing at all like that. Like, I was there. Like, I saw it, nothing at all like that. Very just normal community vibes. I'm being very careful with my words. <laughs> Years later, I no longer was in that community. God, okay, now people are, might know. There's two choices, okay? And the person who was married, their marriage came to a conclusion. It just didn't work out. Married for a while. It didn't work out. For whatever reason. It was better for both parties, actually. It was one of those that just ended, uh, uh, it ended as it should have person who was trying to get married for a long time never even ever, of course, thought of this person as an option because that person was married. After, I don't know, months, a year, year and a half maybe, the person whose marriage had ended comes and proposes to the family and the family says yes and now they've been married for a few years. Now here's the crazy part. They've both been in the community since they were children. Like they both have known each other for three decades. And subhanAllah, like, it's just Allah's timing. Now someone could have said, like, well, why didn't, like, you know, like, could have been earlier. Did, the, did, did this person have to go through a, a dissolved marriage in order for, you know what I mean? Like, there's all these questions. But I don't know. I mean, I haven't asked them point blank, but if you ask me, and I'm sure if I ask them, I know them well enough that they would say that this was the perfect timing. And maybe if something happens too early, it would actually ruin what could have been a good thing. And so when we're demanding something from Allah, we're almost setting ourselves up for failure if we're not submitting to his timeline. Just like Yusuf had to submit to it. Had Yusuf been let go of on a timeline he wanted to be let go of, his entire country or the country that he saved would have been decimated by drought and famine. So what I'm saying is this. Like Yusuf did, we're allowed, we're, we are allowed to strive. We are allowed to make effort. We are allowed to do things in accordance with our own faculties. If you think that this is the right move, you're allowed to move forward with it. But when Allah Ta'ala directs you in a certain way and 
closes off certain doors and opens other ones. And At the end of the day, you have to tie your heart with the bow of submission to Allah. You have to. Otherwise, you go to sleep unfulfilled, resentful, confused, upset, and ultimately waking up further away from Allah than you were the previous day. But if you, if you tie your heart with tawakkul, and this is the Prophet used the verb tie, right? Tie your camel and then trust in Allah. Tie it and then trust in Allah. If you tie your heart and anchor it down with trust, even if you don't know how it's going to happen, but you know it will happen, your heart starts to incline towards Allah and move closer towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? And then he says, after that, what happens when a person submits to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? He says, after that will come a year. You, you follow the plan. Do what I'm telling you. After that will come a year in which people will receive such abundant rain. They will be making juice. Asir, yasiruna. Juice here is not talking about like orange juice. It's talking about they will be extracting the juices of what? All of the grapes and all of the olives. They'll, that only happens in abundance. Like you're not, you're not making olive oil if you don't have enough olives to eat. You're not making wine if you don't have enough grapes to eat. Once you have enough grapes to eat, then you're like, what do we do with all these extra grapes? And you're like, throw them on a bucket. Let's step on them. You know, that's how they extract. Oh, I guess that's how they used to. How do you, well, we got all these extra olives. What do we do? Let's make olive oil. Okay? So he's saying, you're going to have this set of time, seven years, where you're going to have to be responsible. You're going to have to take care of things. Then you're going to have seven years that are going to push you to your limit. You're literally going to have to utilize and use all of what you gained in those previous ones. And you're going to have to like measure it out as 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 specific as possible, saving only a little bit, because when the good times come back, when the abundance comes back, that's when you're going to use now that whatever you have and you're going to plant and Allah will give you so much. What the dream of the king described is the cycle of our lives. There are times that are really nice and even and balanced. And everything there is good. What is the lesson for us in those times? Save. I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about your energy, your life, who you are. When things in your life are going well, when they are relatively smooth, don't be a person that exerts yourself and spends every resource, financially of course, but spends yourself, spends your energy, your strength, your emotion. Don't deplete yourself. Don't do it. Because there will come a time when your life is so challenging. And that's the nature of the, of, of the dunya. The dunya, right? We said this before. The design of the dunya from Allah is to kind of break you down so you realize you can't really depend on it. So there will come times when everything in your life seems to be going wrong. Now, I know everyone's freaking out because you're like, seven years of that? No, no, no. It might be like a month is going really well, and then you have a month that is going really bad. Anyone? You guys feel me? You vibing with that? You picking up what I'm laying down? You guys? No? No one has bad days? All right, mashallah. No nazar here, right? You're obviously not old enough. What's that? Oh, someone's trying to... 
Abdullah is trying to make it happen. You get rejected, Abdullah, I'm sorry. You have a good name, but that was a bad deed. Okay, so. <laughs> Abdullah, I'm going to need you to chill on the airplay. There we go, buddy. All right, Abdullah, see me after class. So, <laughs> <all right. laughs> so you are going to have phases and seasons of your life that go well, right? Thank Allah for those times. You are going to have phases and seasons of your life where things do not go well. Seek refuge with Allah in those times. Don't run away from Him, run back to Him. You know, Imam Ghazali says that there's four states of your life, right? And then you're going to have seasons that are just like an abundance. There's so much good, it's like aid. You don't know what to do with it. Imam Ghazali says there's four stations of your life. He says number one is when things are good. He says be grateful to Allah. Don't ever let good things happen and you be ungrateful. Because that is probably the most horrible thing any person can do. I mean, think about it. Like, think about your friendships. If you're good to somebody and they don't thank you, isn't that pretty messed up? You're like, you know, I did all this for you. And you didn't even thank me. Okay? The second thing he says is that when you are in a time of difficulty, you have to be patient and you have to go back to Allah. The thing he says is that in good and bad, the destination is not different. It's the same destination. It's just the road that you take to get there. When times are good, the road of shukr is open for you. When times are bad, you're still grateful, but the road of patience is open for you. Right? Because maybe the road of shukr has been like washed out with trials. And you can't, it's like difficult, right? You're human. Of course, really amazing people can be grateful all the time. You know, they're able to, one man came to the Prophet Sallallahu he said, Ya Rasulullah, my heart is hard. My heart is like stone. I don't feel anything towards Allah. I'm just, you know, I have all these blessings and I don't know how to feel about it. He says, Go and pat the head of an orphan. Which means, linguistically, Spend some time with some kids, man, that don't have parents. And instantly see for yourself how lucky you are. Your heart is hard? Alright, go and spend time with people that go to sleep and they don't have parents to put them to bed. And just see how, just see how you feel after that. Spend time with them. Foster, mentor a child that has no mom and dad. After a couple days of that, see if your heart is still hard. So same for us. We feel, I don't know what to feel. I don't feel close to God. Okay, go take a day off. Take some time on a weekend. Cancel, cancel those brunch plans. Don't go to Tulum. <laughs> right? Go to a place where there are people who need help. Refugees, orphans, people without homes. And go and spend the day. And just supply, provide, spend time. And then when you walk away, I want you to feel how your heart feels. This is the prophetic prescription. I'm not coming up with this. The Prophet did. Okay? So in life, when you're going through good times, be grateful. Bad times, be patient. And then Imam Ghazali says, when you're obedient to Allah, then also be grateful to Him. And when you're disobedient, then you need to repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? So he says to him, this is the interpretation of the dream that you will have. Now the king says back, and we'll end here inshallah. He says, bring him to me. When the messenger came to him, Yusuf said, this is amazing. What a move. The king's like, wow, he's impressed. Bring this guy to me. Let me meet him. I want to hear it from him, what these dreams mean. Right? It's too good to be true. He knew exactly everything. So the king says, bring him to me. 
When the messenger came back to Yusuf, Yusuf said, Hold on. Irja ila rabbika. Fas'alhu ma balu al-niswati allati qata'na. He says, go ahead and ask him about the woman or the women who cut what? Aidihunna. Twelve years ago, there was a gathering where there was a group of women that they were cutting fruit and they accidentally they, they nicked their hands while they were cutting the fruit. Some people tell the story as if like the women's like amputated their hands. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I mean, it can mean cut, but I think, let's, let's just go with the PG version. A little paper cut, okay? Anyways, and he says that, go and ask the king about that, that case, right? You know, it was like a cold case. It wasn't, it, no, there was no resolution. Some women just cut their hands and now all Right? When the guy came down and said, give me the dream, he said, no, 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 not so fast. Go and ask your king about that day that sent me here. But what did Yusuf do? Yusuf took care of the dream. Why? You tell me why. Why did Yusuf interpret the dream before he made his demands? He lost all leverage, right? Like, does he have leverage? Yes or no? Anyone here in business? It, you're not going to tell, you're not gonna tell your, your, your vendors your prices. You're not going to tell them your, your margins. No. You're not going to lose leverage. He lost all of his leverage. He gave the answer. And now he's making the demands. Ajib. Why did he do that though? Credibility. Huh? Credibility. Credibility? Maybe. Maybe. Huh? He wanted his price to go up. He's controlling the stock markets. He's like, there's a man named Elon that will come. <laughs> One tweet of a rocket ship. And all cryptocurrency will go sky high. Maybe. What else? Think about what the dreams meant, guys. Yeah? He's, he, it was more important for him to save people than to save himself. SubhanAllah. It, like, in that situation, good answer, Abir. She is a doctor, by the way. That's probably why. Okay? In that situation... Most people here, including me, shamelessly going to say it, I'm like, the people of Egypt can wait. <laughs> right? Those women cut their hands. Let's talk about it. And then I will tell you about the fat cows being eaten by the skinny ones. You know, like, that's me. I'm handling that very differently. I haven't seen my dad in 12 years. More. I haven't seen my brothers. Is my dad even alive? I haven't seen my younger brother. Like, sometimes these stories, you dehumanize these people. He's a human being. 12 years is a long time to be alone with your thoughts and to be wondering about what you did wrong and what you could have done differently. But subhanAllah, the Muslim, what defines us as Muslims, and this is a prophet of God teaching us this, is that whenever you have to think about harm and saving people you always take care of others as much as you can because the damage was so immense that if he saves himself and doesn't get that word to the king in time for things to be 
it could be catastrophic. Look at how selfless prophets were. Look at how selfless they were, subhanAllah. So he says, go and tell your king now that I want to talk to him about this day. So then the king meets with the women. He calls them all to his court. And he says, tell me about that time that you guys tried to seduce Yusuf. Because now they've had some conversation. Yusuf gives him the story. And then they said, no way. They said, may Allah Ta'ala, Allah forbid. Right? Alhamdulillah. That's, may God forbid that. He says, we know nothing. Ma alimna alayhi min su'in. God forbid, no. Seduce him? We know nothing bad about him. They're kind of like, this is awkward. Then, the chief's wife, قَالَتْ إِمْرَأَةُ Aziz. She said, and she admitted, that now the truth has arrived. Like this is a moment of truth. Now some of the tafsir says that in this entire 12 years, her husband passed away. And so there's obviously a lot of emotions surrounding this, right? But her husband passed away. And that's why she says what she's about to say, which is she admits that this is the truth. I did try to seduce him, but, and he is truthful, but then she says, Joseph should know that I did not speak dishonestly about him in his absence, for Allah certainly does not guide the scheming of the dishonest. Meaning, she never actually achieved the goal of her seduction, and she never told anyone that she did. So even though, subhanAllah, this is so interesting, man, the humanity here on display is like 4K, it's incredible. Yusuf is asking for his justice. The king, who doesn't know anything about this, is now reopening the case. He's asking these women. These women, who all have scars on their hands, <laughs> are like, we don't know what happened, right? <laughs> like hiding their hands. And then you have one person, right? This is what guilt does. When you wrong somebody, you have to live with it. You have to live with it, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ, he said that on the Day of Judgment, Allah will forgive every sin that you ask Him to, but he will, God will, give the right to the wronged person on that day that they're the ones that have to forgive you. Meaning his forgiveness is granted, but it's contingent upon what? The victim's forgiveness. And so Allah is essentially saying, you have provisional forgiveness, but so-and-so, you wronged them. I'm not going to take their right away from them, even though Allah can. Allah's forgiveness can supersede anyone's. I'm not going to take their right away from them. They have to forgive you in order for my forgiveness to be granted to you. That's why guilt is so heavy. You know, you do something wrong, you feel really bad about it. If you don't, it's a really bad problem. Because guilt, God gave us the feeling of regret, remorse, and guilt to drive us to make our relationships better. Otherwise, we'd never apologize. You'd only apologize if you had to. And at that point, where's the sincerity? But subhanAllah, I'll tell you something. You know, they talk about liberation. They talk about being free financially, emotionally, right? Wake up, jump in an ice bath, run seven miles, start an LLC, vacuum your bed, right? All the guys are laughing. You know what I'm talking about. We're on the same algorithms, right? Okay? You'll be liberated. You know what liberates you the most in life? Never wronging someone and apologizing when you do. 
Because you're not shackled anymore. If you wrong people, you are their slave on the day of judgment. They're going to call you out. Come here. Never wronging somebody and apologizing when you do. I'll tell you a story, man. I've got to conclude because it's mucking up time soon. I, you know, the internet is a horrible place. And people get into debates and arguments and all kinds of stuff on the internet, right? And everyone, no one wants to back down when people fight. Also, forget the internet, real life. No one wants to back down. Everyone's arguing. No one backs down. I was just talking to a friend of mine who said that he has, <laughs> he's like, yeah, uh, my uncle, who I haven't talked to for like 15 years. I was like, why didn't you talk to your uncle for 15 years? And he was like, well, it's a long story. I said, what? And he said, uh, I actually said, is it 15 years long? Like, that was a bad joke. But um, he said, yeah, like he got into an argument with my family, my dad or whatever. And, and he's like, they just stopped talking for 15 years. And I was thinking in my head, subhanAllah, like how much weight did, did each of those people carry for 15 years in their chest? Every Eid, every birthday, every janazah, every funeral, every time that family was talked about, every holiday, every Thanksgiving, every this, 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 right? And they had to deal with that. So when we argue, when we get into debates, the nafs wants to win, but the heart is begging you, just give in. Just say sorry. Once you climb that mountain of humility, I promise you it gets better on the other side. Because the guilt that you're carrying can only be resolved by apologizing. But the longer that I hold on to it, that more, the happier shaitan is, the weaker my heart gets, the stronger my nafs gets. And then, subhanAllah, sometimes, sometimes, as in the case with the Aziz's wife, Someone loses their life and you're not able to settle things with them before it's too late. Imagine how she feels. Her husband passed away thinking that she cheated on him. I know this is kind of like, whoa, this is not in the tafsir. Let's, they're humans. Imagine that a husband's on his deathbed and he's thinking that the love of my life, my partner, I don't know if she was faithful to me. And now you can hear it in her voice. She's saying that he should know I never spoke dishonestly about him in his absence. And it's almost like you can feel the regret. I wish I never did that. I wish I, never, I, wish I controlled myself and never did that. Right? We ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us people that never wrong anybody. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow people's hearts to forgive us and that they never hold grudges against us. And that if we wrong somebody, that Allah gives us the courage to apologize and Allah gives them the softness to forgive us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us people that act upon the lessons in this book and that this book becomes guidance for us and that we become guided by it. We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to always turn to the Qur'an as a means of reflection, as a means of inspiration, as a means of clarification and that we learn the countless lessons from the stories that he sent to us through his Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu We ask Allah Ta'ala to allow us to leave this gathering tonight with renewed intent and renewed commitment to his faith, and we ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us for all of our shortcomings and to make us those who are closer to him and constantly striving towards him. Ameen, ameen, ya rabbil alameen. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nashadu khuruka wa natubu ilaykum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.